What's up, everybody? Welcome back to your latest installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast, and it is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett, and I am here to talk to the author, William D. Cohen, about his new book, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, which is an incredible history of General Electric. Uh, it is a piece of industrial history that I think we should all take much greater note of. William, how are you? And thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, Emmett. Thank you for having me. Um, so before we get into the book, I wanted to ask you a little bit sort of about yourself. You worked for GE for a time, you mentioned in the, uh, I think in the acknowledgments towards the end of the book, uh, and you've written several other books, uh, many of them of comparable length, by the way, guys, this is this is a doorstopper and it's worth every page. Uh, especially for the Jack Welch quotes, which are like uniformly hilarious throughout. Um, how did, tell me a little bit about this story arc, how you got to be the guy that writes the history of GE. Uh, well, I had, um, you know, the short version is I had been a journalist uh, and then uh, after a couple of years, went back to get my MBA uh, at Columbia and then went to Wall Street, um, and my first job out of Columbia was at GE Capital, and this was in 1987. And uh, my job was to uh, finance leverage buyouts, which you know I, I was uniquely unqualified for, uh, having <laughs> been uh, a journalist uh, who then uh, I was a journalist covering public education in Wake County, North Carolina. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, through the alchemy of uh, an MBA program, next thing you know, you, you know, sit there and you take these classes for two years. The next thing you know, you're hired to uh, finance leverage buyouts at GE. So that was uh, uh, quite an unusual experience. And I did that for a year and then uh, worked for the chief credit officer at GE Capital uh, up in Stanford, uh, reverse commuting between New York City and and Stanford. And that during that year, I got to learn all of the businesses of GE Capital because they mm. had to come through the chief credit officer to get approved. So I, you know, I was his analyst. Uh, and so I did the research, the work, the analysis to figure out whether G Capital should actually finance these deals. And so first I got this education about, you know, finance and leverage buyouts. And then I got this education about all the things that G Capital did. So, you know, then I spent another, uh, you know, 15 plus years on Wall Street as a M&A investment banker. And then uh, in 2004, almost 20 years ago, turned to writing. Uh, this is my seventh book and uh basically uh, a, a strange piece of serendipity happened um obviously i knew plenty about ge and followed it and knew what an incredible company it was for the longest time um and one of the guys who i started with at ge capital you know financing leverage buyouts um this guy named john flannery uh stayed at GE. You know, I left, I went to Lazard, I went to Merrill Lynch, I went to JP Morgan Chase. He stayed, uh, and lo and behold, in uh 2017, he was chosen to succeed Jeff Immelt as CEO after mm. G after Jeff Immelt got fired. So uh, next thing I know is, you know, my good friend uh, is CEO, which was great for him. Uh, but then I sort of started hearing and seeing and reading, you know, all the crazy things that were happening to GE and to him uh, once he became CEO, you know, uncovering problems in the power business, uncovering problems in the long term healthcare uh, companies that GE owned that he didn't even know they owned. Mm. Uh, and and, you know, after 15 months, he got uh, fired uh, in a coup. Uh, which I hadn't fully appreciated, uh, you know, and which was incredible because, you know, Jack Welch had been CEO for 20 years and Jeff Immelt had been CEO for 17 years. And here 
this great guy, John Flannery, my friend, you know, lasts only 15 months. So needless to say, there was sort of a dead body on the ground. And I had mm. to figure out how it got there. So that's how it all came about. That's and then when Jack, you know, when Jack Welch said he would, you know, grant me interviews, um, you know, as he was in declining health, well, that, of course, sealed the deal. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, the opening's fantastic when you meet him at the golf course uh, and you ask him about Jeff Immel and the first thing he says, yeah, I fucked up. Which seems true to form. You know, I, uh, around when his book came out uh, mm-hmm. from the gut and that, straight that's a whole straight from the gut. Yeah. That's a whole story. Arc. My mom actually, uh, I think interviewed him for like at a cranes event mm-hmm. in Chicago. Uh, and okay. she said that he's right. exactly like everybody said he was. Um, and, uh, but, but what I realized while reading it, you know, he's this Titanic figure. Um, he, you know, my mom's a small business owner. My stepfather w- ran a polyurethane manufacturer. Um, and, I realized that he loomed so large in their lives just as people interested in business. And then I realized that my generation, the millennials might be the last generation, except for people who are dedicated to business and business history, who really know who Jack Welch was. He was like this almost statesman-like figure that GE had produced. So I have some younger fans from the pro nuclear world. Um, and I was wondering if you wouldn't tell us a little about, about who Jack Welch is uh, and how he came to be this prominent guy, because I don't think he's a household name for the generation just below me. Right. Which of course you're right in, in being amazed at uh, because once upon a time, you know, Jack Welch was it. I mean, uh, he yeah. was, uh, you know, Fortune dubbed him the manager of the century, mm-hmm. the 20th century. Um, and here we are, you know, 23 years into the next century. And, you know, basically he seems to be fading uh, or or his legacy is being revised. Um, and what I, uh, well, I mean, let's just on who, who Jack was. I mean, he was, um, you know, uh, only child of um, very much sort of lower middle class parents grew up north uh, west of Boston in a town called Salem Massachusetts famous for the you know witch trials mm-hmm. uh, in the 1600s um, sort of a historic uh, community uh, his father uh, was uh, worked on the train um uh, that went between Boston and the North shore of Massachusetts, a train that I uh, used to take all the time. I grew up near Salem too. So um, I'm very familiar with Salem. Uh, And uh, uh, he, he made his way to uh, university of Massachusetts in Amherst mass. And then uh, the university of Illinois, where he got his PhD in, um, uh, like nuclear condensation, you know, yeah, properties. something like I've looked at the PhD thesis, but I must say I don't understand it, uh, much of it. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, he was they sort of wanted him to stay and be a professor, he just he was tempted by that, but of course, he didn't want to be a professor, he wanted to go into business. He got offered a job at uh, you know, Exxon and decided to take a job at GE in the plastics division, which was based in Pittsfield, Mass. Uh, uh, and it was really totally, uh, because they uh, like paid him $1,000 more or something a year. Yeah. Uh, um, and it was a completely nascent business. They had developed these um, uh, this plastic, it wasn't even a product, they had this plastic material and, and and it was Jack's job to commercialize it, mm-hmm. a- and he did that uh, very effectively. He, you know that they became these plastic pellets that would be melted down and go into car bumpers and all sorts of car parts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, and he became a you know a, a fantastic success doing that, sort of a, like a rocket ship uh, at GE. But he was always. Um, you know, growing up, he was he was a small guy, uh, but he was a fierce sort of competitor 
and was also miraculously some sort of athlete. Um, and he was, you know, that he brought that competitive spirit. Uh, and he he grew up, he stuttered, and he overcame his stutter. Um, you know, again, another accomplishment, both on the athletic accomplishments, physical uh, stuttering accomplishments. He wasn't a great student, but again, he got a PhD. Um, and he just sort of lit it up at GE and would get really pissed off when he wasn't rewarded with, you know, the highest compensation. Like after his first year at at GE Plastics, you know, he I think he was paid like $10,500 or something. Mm-hmm. And he discovered uh, that everybody in his group who had started when he did was getting paid $10,500 or whatever it was. And uh, he got really pissed off because he thought he should have gotten paid more because he was smarter, better, faster, et cetera. Uh, and that he actually went in to quit. He also didn't like his boss. He he also, he went in to quit. He did quit. And he had like, was getting ready to take another job in Chicago at some uh, company. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically his boss's boss uh, talked him out of it, got him to stay, paid him more and became his rabbi. And he decided to stay. So basically, Jack was raring to go. He even there was even a going away party for him, where they gave him gifts that he took. Even yeah. though he decided, <laughs> he was like, "Well, he was like, why would I? Why would I do not do the? I mean, yeah. here's the other thing that I found so interesting about him in 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 your telling of of how this guy rises to prominence. He just has this. Um, he sees things other people don't, and he sees things about people that other people don't both their motives, their character. He can also sort of, it seems like he has this um, uncanny ability to sort of uh, sort out bullshit and recognize the value in a situation. Um, And I think one of my favorite stories of him like sorting out bullshit was, it's like right after he becomes CEO and the appliance guys come to show him some refrigerators. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing showing me this fridge? I haven't been in a fridge in like a decade. He's like, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. This is so that if I say I like it because it's the color purple and it doesn't sell, you can say, well, you like the color purple. He's like, well, I'm not going to fucking say it. (laughs) And he said it almost just like that. And I was like, man, this guy knew what the drop was the second he walked in the room. And the thing was, is he could say things like that and people would still love him. Like he could, he had this ability to be like, he wanted the fight, but that was also how he would establish intimacy with some of these guys and they would cultivate these friendships and, and, these, and like, to motivate them yeah and to motivate them like he really he really wanted that out of his employees i think he thought friction was the way forward from what i can tell in your book well a combination of friction challenging and love i mean you know, yeah he, yeah he loved them deeply yeah and they loved him i mean one thing that really uh shocked me uh as i reported this and interviewed all these people for the book is that even the the people he fired uh he they they loved him like dave cody who was uh you know running the major appliance division after doing a bunch of other things which was based in louisville kentucky where they had those refrigerators and you know washing machines etc uh since sold to the chinese by the way um Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's still sold under the GE brand for the time being. Uh, anyway, that was sort of like the worst performing of the 13 GE divisions at that time. And um, uh, basically, uh, Jack, you know, who liked Dave Cody quite a bit, called him up to, you know, a Fairfield and they had dinner. They basically told Dave that, you know, he, he had to leave the company uh, because he was not going to be under consideration to be you know, CEO after Jack, and therefore he just had to leave. And Jack would not listen. You know, Dave tried to, you know, talk to him about what he could do to change, to improve, to do better, to, you know, give me another chance. You know, he's like sort of pleading for his life. And Jack just wouldn't listen. Jack just no. said, please, you're, you're out of here. And of course, Dave had to leave. Uh, you know, eventually you know, worked at other places, eventually became the CEO of Honeywell, which is another 
G story, but um, yeah. <laughs> eventually, oh, boy is it, <laughs> boy is it. Uh, but eventually, uh, even though Jack could have bought Honeywell, he decided not to, and then Honeywell remained a remains remained and remains a, a publicly traded company, and it was ended up being worth more than GE. So I I asked him, Jack, you know, did he kind of make a mistake? by firing Dave Cody, and he did admit that he did make a mistake. But Dave Cody, who was fired by Jack, still loves the guy. Yeah. The Paul Bear at his funeral. Yeah, there was a journalist who was doing, like, muckraking on GE, and, like, Welch basically just hammers the guy, and he ends up leaving journalism and all this stuff, and he's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, I have to thank Jack Welch because he brought me closer to Christ. And I was like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Like the amount the amount of people that could have bad blood against Jack Welch, and they're just like, God, I love him every single day. And well, I think he was being. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, a little ironic, like, but a little ironic. But I mean, yeah. he's also a devout Presbyterian. It's not like that comes from nowhere. Also, you know, well, he like, went from being a hard boiled, uh, you know, Thomas F. O. Boyle from being a hard, no pun intended, uh, hard boiled, uh, you know, investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal covering GE to you know, finding God in yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah, and which is... Having no regrets, no doubts. He wrote this he, hard-hitting book about GE. Jack just, you know, eviscerated him constantly, you know, including getting a hold of his book proposal and then sticking, you know, a former U.S. attorney on it. Which is, like, incredible. Like, that is so wild. Like, why my worst nightmare as a freelancer is anyone leaking an early draft of something I've done, let alone the proposal for a book or like doing stuff with that? Just, just incredible. I mean, this guy's power was crazy. And I think part of how he rose there, if if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, is what he saw possible with GE Capital once he became CEO. Well, right? Absolutely. So can you tell that sort of explain what what he did with GE in that way because to me that's the huge part of the story not just of Jack Welch but then sort of what happens to Jeff Immelt once he gets handled handed the ball yeah I mean I think uh it's really underappreciated how important GE capital was to GE both by investors by Wall Street research analysts who understood the industrial side of the business, but not the finance side of the business. Mm. I mean, it started, of course, simply enough as a way for customers during the Depression to finance their purchases of GE appliances. Simple enough. Uh, but, you know, what Jack realized when he took over the running of it as he was sort of moving up the ladder before he became CEO uh, was that and as and and he said this to me, it was a lot easier to make money from money than it was to make money from you know bending metal into an aircraft engine. Um, and so he uh, realized that uh, there was this huge opportunity to arbitrage GE's AAA credit rating. You know, GE was one of twelve AAA rated companies, which basically means that its cost of capital was extremely low. You know, just above Treasuries. And uh, so, in other words, just above the rate that the U.S. government uh, could borrow. And so he was able to arbitrage that uh, cost of cap, low cost of capital by borrowing in the short term financing markets, the commercial paper markets, and then turning around and lending that money out uh, for 7, 10, 15, you know, 20 plus years at huge spreads, making a huge amount of money. And, you know, as long as the commercial paper markets continued to function normally, which of course they did until 2008, everything was great. G didn't need to own a bank, so G didn't have any deposits, but it just had this huge opportunity to borrow short, lend long, borrow cheaply, and lend out inexpensively, and Jack just loved it. And he had, you know, some great people like Gary Went and Dennis Naden who understood that business and and managed the risks for Jack. And, you know, that's, of course, where I was working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and, 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 and not only financing the leverage buyouts, as I said, but then working for the chief credit officer. So I really, you know, what, you know, even though it was whatever, 1987, when I did that. Uh, and so this was, you know, 20, 
three or you know or 13 plus another 20 or so years later so 30 plus years later you know what i had picked up from my year working for the chief credit officer became very valuable to me as i was writing the book because i literally i had a clear understanding of what ge capital was all about um and you know in writing my other books about the fall of bear stearns Mm. in 2008 or how Goldman Sachs managed to avoid the fate of Bear Stearns. Um, you know, I, I learned intimately what happened during the financial crisis. And, you know, then, of course, GE got caught up in it without people realizing it. You know, everybody was focused on the Wall Street banks and yeah. our companies. See, I think to me, so I've just, um, while I was reading your book, I was finishing up a uh, like 10,000 word piece on Enron's impact on America's energy industry, because I think that's an under told part of the story. You know, everybody wants to talk about Arthur Anderson and all this. And of course it's sexy and it did have a huge impact as you detail in your book. But I noticed something that was really similar in uh, sort of like a transition in the nineties in companies like Enron or GE that were known as having uh being like asset heavy in certain ways um generating appliances or having these like hard deliverables but then also adopted huge financial arms to them right like jeff skilling's contribution to enron is to almost turn it into like a finance company or something like that and then once enron falls and this is around the time jack welch is handing off his crown to jeff immelt it just sends these ripples through everything. First of all, huge doubt about the ability to be this sort of hybrid finance asset uh, heavy thing. Uh, and that also invites a lot of scrutiny on to uh, what people are doing with their books. Uh, and that impacts GE because GE Capital is sort of like this black box. You know, there's this weird sort of dance that happens between Enron and all of these major investing companies and companies like GE. GE buys a bunch of their wind farms and stuff like that. Uh, but it really changes things for Jeff Immelt right out the gate. Like he says in your book, I had one good day when I started and it was September 10th, 2001. And then yeah. he wakes up. <laughs> The next day and it's tragically 9-11 and i think people forget like ge has a huge turbine <laughs> or had a huge turbine and i don't know what where they are now with that um but they were selling jet engine parts and things like that like it was a disaster they, and then they made the jet months, engines on those planes yeah and then two months later <laughs> enron stock drops to like 50 cents and they file for bankruptcy and like that that shockwave comes out so email can't inherit jack's world right like sort of the way jack had built it the context around ge changed like immediately i was so amazed by that you know because i think jack really did everything he could to hand off the best ge he could possibly create yeah that's quite true i mean absolutely and i think that's hugely important context and that you know is something that, of course, Jeff Immelt said to me and feels very strongly about. I mean, Jack told me that he felt like he handed Jeff off a royal flush, and I think, mm -hmm. it, you know, Jeff didn't see it that way. And, of course, the, as you were saying, the macroeconomic environment that Jeff had to operate in was utterly changed from, like, a light switch from September 10th to September 11th. GE made the jet engines on the planes. Um, GE had reinsured a number of the buildings down at the World Financial Center. GE owned NBC, which of course didn't have any advertising for a week or so, uh, costing it hundreds of millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, as and then, you know, the fall of Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, you know, it just, um, the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, mm -hmm. where CEOs and CFOs had to sign off on their financial statements, you know, Jack didn't have to do that. Uh, and so, you know, the degrees of freedom, uh, shall we say, that mm. used to exist for Jack, uh, no longer, and of course, Jack, you know, had the, was the beneficiary of this incredible bull market that went from 82 to, you know, to 2001. And so, um, you know, 
the world changed. Um, now, Jeff cites that uh, in his defense um, for why it was more difficult for him to 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 manage and run GE. You know, Jeff's response, Jack's response to that as well. You know, uh, GE continued to run pretty well under Jeff for the never next seven years. It was only until the financial crisis in in two thousand eight when things began to change. It was really after in the first quarter of two thousand eight when uh, you know Bear Stearns uh, went down the tubes on March fifteenth two thousand eight. That was almost to the end of the first quarter of the year, and uh, Jeff had basically said, you know, GE was going to make, you know, X amount of uh, dollars um, of net income. And, he, you know, he missed that estimate by, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. a billion dollars or so. First time uh, that had happened since like 1938, right? To GE, like they had always delivered more or you less. Know, like, certainly under then? Jack's uh, leadership, of, you yeah. know, 20 years of Jack, he always delivered quarter after quarter after quarter saying what he would. And this is the first time that you know, in a long time that that the CEO of GE had said they were going to make whatever it was in the first quarter of 2008. But because of the tumult in the capital markets after Bear Stearns filed for bankruptcy, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Immelt couldn't do what Jack had been doing forever, which was sort of taking assets out of GE Capital and selling them uh, as needed to make the numbers in a good, given quarter. And so he missed the mark by whatever it was, like a, a billion dollars. And uh, Jack just was infuriated by that. Actually went on CNBC, which of course Jack had started uh, when he, you know, after they bought NBC and, and said that if Jeff ever... Think about this. The, the yeah, form, it's yeah. not quite like Mike. It's not quite like Bob Iger coming back. I mean, at least he didn't come back. But if, if you think about, it, you know, he goes on CNBC and he says, if Jeff Immelt ever misses a quarter again, uh, you know, misses what he says he's going to do, I'm going to take out a gun and shoot him on national television. To I, just, it was to me like I I couldn't believe what I was reading. I was like, this is, this is out of control. Like, this looks so bad. Because it doesn't just look bad for Emil. Because, you know, Jack is Teflon in a way, right? Like, everybody's still going to love Jack. People might be like, that's out of line. You know, it doesn't, it's not a good look for him. But they're also going to love him at the end of the day. But it makes GE look like, to me, that moment was a real portent for, like, what happens uh, to Flannery later. <laughs> to me i was like there's some love there i was like something has changed mm. in like the natural order of things for this company where the social compact whatever the the yeah. quiet agreement was you know the you know the whatever over. the rule about the republicans we don't criticize another republican whatever it is yeah uh, you know that reagan always uh espoused and adhered to and obviously is gone now mm -hmm. yeah that was sort of that same moment we don't criticize uh uh, a, a previous CEO. And despite that, I mean, Jeff told me how angry he was about that, but he still never criticized Jack, even though he didn't talk to Jack much after that. Uh, but, you know, that was definitely a turning point. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit and talk about Emil and where he comes from and what his deal is. I found him to be a very tragic figure when I read the book, like, Jack seemed like allergic to losing in a way like he was just like almost constitutionally incapable for a really long time of that happening to him. Uh, and I was very interested in the fact that Jack comes from chemicals. He comes from like the hard physical world and then displays this adroitness when it comes to finance and all these other things. And Jeff, my understanding is that he's more of like a sales guy. And then his idea to save GE is to get out of GE capital back into like the more asset sort of heavy making stuff uh, things, but the, the capabilities didn't seem to port the other way they almost did for Jack. And some of that seemed to have to do with Emil's constitution. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about this guy. Sure. Well, he grew up, um, he grew up in Cincinnati, uh, one of two brothers, uh, by the way, his older brother um, is, 
uh, senior partner at a major law firm based in Washington, mm-hmm. or well, you know, was for a long time. So very accomplished family. His father was uh, worked at GE Jet Engines uh, for like thirty years mm-hmm. uh, in a facility, by the way, that was underground because of like national security concerns. So for thirty years, his father would go to work and work underground. Man, every day, which is pretty interesting um uh his brother steve was at yale uh jeff decided he didn't want to go to yale he went to dartmouth uh played football um frat guy uh then uh went to harvard business school where he was you know focused on marketing his first job out of harvard business school was uh on the duncan hines account at PG. Uh, and then, you know, moved on to GE. So, um, and then was a, a lifer at GE, worked through all sorts of different, started in uh, plastics uh, too, um, but worked in all sorts of different businesses, including major appliances and the healthcare business, uh, and and then uh, running uh, GE in a famous, you know, three-way bake-off that occurred, um, you know, in 1999, 2000, uh that jeff jeff won and um you know he did not have uh you know he seems very gregarious uh you know mm-hmm. sort of like a big uh guy uh hail fellow well met midwest kind of thing but i don't think he yeah, it's almost falstaffian vibe to... <laughs> yeah that's, yeah and, but he didn't have the same gregariousness uh, and connection. He didn't make the same connections with people. He didn't inspire the same kind of loyalty. Uh, you know, you know. I think loyalty is a two-way street. You know, like Jack gave loyalty, and he got loyalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jeff. People would probably give Jeff their loyalty, but he didn't really return it uh, uh, in the same way Jack did. So, if you didn't agree with Jack, he had plenty of time for that. He could change his mind. He. You know, he didn't get upset about that. He realized it was like a big tent and we have to, you know, al- allow uh, for many different uh, points of view to be expressed. And e- even dissenting views had to be accommodated. And I'd be willing to change my, my mind, mm-hmm. uh, even though I-, I went into the meeting not agreeing with you at all. But, you know, kudos to you. You changed my way of thinking and I'm I'm big enough to accommodate that. Uh, Jeff, unfortunately, um, you know, he would say to me repeatedly how he believed that he kept the best people around him, but I didn't really find a whole lot of evidence of that. Uh, what I found instead is that if people disagreed with him, you know, they, they left soon thereafter. Mm. Yeah. It happens over and over again in the book. Happened over and over again. And I wasn't just, you know, being selective. I wasn't being mean spirited. I was just being reportorial. I mean, when you lose, you know, Dave Calhoun, if you lose now the CEO of Boeing, or if you lose Michael Prawley, who had, you know, um, you know, made the real estate business at G Capital huge, or 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 John Krenicki, who's now at Clayton Dubelier, you know, who was running the power business, you know, you know, you've got to be able to. It was interesting because you know, Jack, like I was telling you the story of. Dave Cody, I mean, he basically said, all right, Dave, you know, you're not going to be CEO, you got to go. Even the two candidates that did not succeed in becoming the CEO after Jack, Jim McNerney and uh, Robert Nardelli, Jack basically said, you guys got to leave, which, you know, I get that on one level. You don't want the, the runners up hanging around, mm-hmm. second guessing what you're doing as the new CEO. So I get that. And on the other hand, that's a lot of talent to lose. I mean, Nardelli went on to be CEO of Home Depot and Chrysler and, mm-hmm. and 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 McNerney to be the CEO going. So that's a lot of talent to walk out the door. But, you know, so but Jack was very clear about that. People would leave under Jeff. And I don't think he really wanted them to leave, but he, he in the sense that he wanted them to stay, but he didn't like being disagreed with. Mm-hmm, and he, mm-hmm. people felt like, okay, now I've done it. I've stepped on the, you know, the the uh, roadside device by disagreeing with him, and now I've blown myself up with, you know, the CEO, and I got to leave. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seemed to me like Jack Jack expected loyalty and gave loyalty. Imilt expected fealty, which was very different in its very like social different. complexion. You yeah. know, and he seemed to not be aware of that, which to me is is really a kiss of death. Yeah. You know, like he did because not have if, great EQ. Yeah. Surprisingly. So if, yeah, if you're creating relationships with people as a leader and you are unaware of the way in which you're mold, like you're self-deceived about the way in which you're molding them, it's going to be very difficult for you as time goes on because those create dynamics that perpetuate and also roll downward, you know, like the fish rots from the head. And uh, that there were so many times where I really felt for Immelt because I, I thought he got dealt a really rough hand, you know? Um, and I, well, I don't know. He got dealt a pretty great hand. If I mean, he took over a company that was the most valuable and most respected in the world. Sure. I, and like, I'm not going to deny that, but we've talked about the macroeconomic thing and I felt bad for him. Like almost the way you feel for a tragic character. Right. Like like Oedipus, where you say, if only you could see yes. <laughs> the thing that you can't see, this would be very different. And and of course, that is a it's such a typically human trait. In fact, the yeah. the exception is the person like Jack, who has a lot of self awareness. Mm-hmm. Oh is yeah, self-deprecating. Yeah, and also- as well as tough and you know cruel and impolitic. And he probably Jack probably would have been canceled. You know, if you were around today. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is... He'd be fodder for the canceling mill. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of what I found so profound about your book, right? Because I was was thinking about it and I'd read it right after reading Catherine Blunt's history of Pacific Gas and Electric. And I was like, these are both rise and fall stories. And the rise and fall is very different for both. There's like these structural almost archival problems <laughs> that like pg and e really runs into especially with their transmission wires all of these things that has to do with being also a three-century company for ge there's almost this like roman problem this machiavellian problem that if you read any of the ancient political philosophers they're always concerned with this because they're all aristocrats and it's the succession problem and that endures as a really difficult thing to pull off, you know, who succeeds who and how, and how do they maintain what's been built? And that problem has not gone away. No, no. And, and again, it goes to, to the heart of human nature. Like look at, look at Disney and Bob mm. Iger, right? He, he, he wanted to, he probably hated the idea of like having to give up being CEO of Disney, right? He did it kind of only reluctantly. And and who does he choose, choose to succeed him? A guy who he probably suspected was going to fail. And like sure. this whole thing that, that uh, you know, he, he didn't want to choose anybody that would outshine him. Look at what's mm-hmm. happening, you know, at, at J.P. Morgan Chase with Jamie Dimon. All the potential heirs to the throne, they, they just get tired of waiting. The guy will not give up the post. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he should because he's obviously quite talented but i mean you know what he's depleting his succession ranks you know uh jack actually you know cultivated an extraordinary group of potential successors you know yes and and to his credit um now he says he picked the wrong one which is a major blunder right which he missed to me even before i could sit down at the table in nantucket (laughs) country club Okay, he, he he says that, and it sort of blows my mind. But at least, at least he you know created a very public succession process, and nobody disputed the talents of mm-hmm. the three people who were who were in succession race. And there could have even have been others, as we talked about Dave Cody. Meanwhile, Jeff didn't do that at all. He did, he just partially because he didn't think he was going to get abruptly fired when he did. He thought he had more time, but nevertheless. Not that much more time, though. It was three well, so years. So he says. Yeah. Well, so so he, he, you know, he was abruptly fired in June of 2017. He said he was already planning to leave at the end of that year. He, in truth, he he hoped to be there as long as Jack, which was 20 years. So he was he had three more years to go, and I'm sure 
you know, they they had to very quickly gin up a succession uh, plan, which benefited my friend John Flannery. So I was thinking, this is great. Finally, one of the good guys, really mm-hmm. one of the really good guys, has made it to the top of one of these organizations. How unlikely is that? Right? That never happens. Right? How often is it a good guy that gets to the top, or girl, or lady? Mm-hmm. Sure. Very rarely. So, so, and then of course, what happened? He gets zotzed. So at that point, I'm thinking, Jesus, I got to figure out what happened here. So, which again gets back to. Yeah, so tell me that story a little bit. Like, tell me about the handout. We sort of talked about, like, from uh, Jack to Jeff. Tell me a little bit about what happened. Like, it's to me, it was like some real, like, scald, like, like skullduggery. Lots of stuff is happening in the background, you know, when it comes to Flannery and the handoff there. So, what what's going on? Well, the, the, the first, you know, the. the you know, GE has to get, you know, it goes back to the 2008 financial crisis, which again, nobody focused on because everybody was focused on what was going on on Wall Street and the TARP and the all the, the lines of credit that the Treasury and the FDIC were making available and the Fed were making available to all these financial institutions. And people were focused on the Wall Street banks. Are they going to go down the tubes? Or the car companies, are they going to go down the tubes? Or AIG, is it going to go down the tubes? Nobody was focusing on GE. Now, GE had like the fourth largest financial institution in in the country underneath its you know, banner. And so I didn't even realize, I mean, I knew how big GE Capital was, but I didn't realize that Jeff Immelt had to go hat, hat in hand to Hank Paulson and then hat in hand to Sheila Bear at the FDIC and had to beg to get into these lines of financing to you know make it possible for them to continue to do business and that GE Capital had almost filed for bankruptcy twice you know mm-hmm. during 2008 and 2009 so that was a stunning revelation and so you know then GE Capital they get the bailout which nobody really focuses on they get bailed out they get access to all these lines of credit uh you know because the the sources of financing that they had been using the commercial paper market obviously got disrupted in September of 2008. Uh, and so they became a SIFI. They became a systemically important financial institution, which meant that they went from being unregulated to being heavily regulated by the Fed. And that cost GE, you know, $2 billion plus a year. And the Fed was all over every, almost every decision that GE was making, including attending board meetings and just sort of being a general nuisance or so Jeff Immel thought. So then he makes the big decision to get out of GE Capital so that they would no longer be a SIFI. So he makes that decision in 2015. They package it all up. They make a big announcement. They call it Project Hubble. And, you know, he's got all these plans, what he's going to do for the money. Of course, by announcing that you're going to sell GE Capital, of course, everybody, you know, on Wall Street who's potential buyer is going to pick your pocket. Because you're a, sure, a declared yeah. seller. So yeah. that wasn't the greatest strategy. But then he compounds it by essentially inviting Tryon Partners, Nelson Peltz's hedge fund, activist hedge fund, to buy into the GE equity and to essentially ratify Jeff's brilliance by, you know, endorsing, saying, okay, you know, Nelson Peltz is now spending two and a half billion dollars to buy a, a tiny stake in GE's equity and ratifying Jeff's brilliance of selling GE capital and redeploying the capital buying back stock, et cetera, et cetera. And so that turned out to be a disastrous decision. Hmm. Uh, and essentially, um, you know, what he hoped would be a friendly activist investor. It's almost a, uh, you know, the, the words don't even go together. Uh, <laughs> you know, a friendly activist investor. Um, uh, but he thought that they would be friendly because he had been friendly with Nelson Peltz's son-in-law, Ed Garden's brother at Dartmouth and used to go to the Garden's house in Melrose, Massachusetts on holidays instead of going back to Cincinnati. So he thought they would be friendly, but in fact, um they weren't. And two years later, as Jeff, you know, 
the stock was going down and he had wasted 30 billion of capital buying back the stock at 40 plus dollars a share to reduce the denominator in the shares outstanding so that he could hope to make $2 a share in 2018. And it was clear that he wasn't going to, but he refused to give up the ghost on $2 a share. And mm. anyway, it all came to a head at a, a meeting with Wall Street analysts in Longboat Key, Florida in uh, May of 2017. And then he was fired by Nelson, pa his friend Nelson Pelz, who he called the smiling crocodile uh, in June of 2017. And you know, very quickly, uh, you know, they, they they could tell that his days were numbered. They ginned up a succession process mm -hmm. between John Flannery and, uh, you know, a couple, you know, Steve Bowles, who was head of the power division. But, of course, he never really had a chance. And Jeff Bornstein, who was the CFO. I mean, uh, again, I think John Flannery was the right choice. Uh, and but, uh, you know, very quickly, um problems that he did not know about were uncovered problems in the power business in terms of you know selling power uh plants to like the country of angola and yeah essentially financing that acquisition and then they don't pay their bills you know, factoring the receivables it reminded uh, me of the like um uh, rebecca marks like bhopal deal in India for that big power plant that never got made, you know, like all of these things, you know, that if they stay on your books long enough, like they will come back to haunt you. Yeah. Essentially they were mortgaging their future yeah. to try to make this elusive $2 a share that Jeff had promised. And, you know, people were telling him, you're never going to make $2 a share. He wouldn't refuse to budget off that. And of course that he died, uh, you know, he was hoisted on the $2 a share petard. Mm -hmm. Um, that was his cross of gold. And so, um, you know, John had to felt he had to come clean with what was going on in the power business, which was a disaster. And then there was the whole long term health liability that Jeff could have gotten rid of when he got rid of the other insurance businesses, uh, but failed to do that. Uh, and that became like a 15 billion dollar surprise liability. Which actually, uh, this was pre-COVID, they had to announce that. I, I think actually COVID, because essentially people were living longer mm -hmm. than than the actuaries had anticipated. And so the liabilities related to their longer lives were coming back to, to haunt GE, who still owned these businesses. Uh, so they had to put up a $15 billion liability uh, you know, uh, uh, against it, uh, a capital allocation against the liability. And... You know, surprising the markets, the stock tanks, ironically, COVID, you know, a lot of these uh, people they were insuring were in nursing homes, uh, mm -hmm. were living longer, but in COVID, of course, many of them could not survive that. And so probably the liability has shrunk. But in any event, you know, so John is revealing these things um, in one problem after the other. And uh, he had, by then he had invited uh Ed Garden from from Trying Partners onto the board. He had invited Larry Culp, who used to be um, at Danaher, uh, mm -hmm. on the board um, to try to you know get their wisdom, and they just teamed up together to defenestrate. Yes, John yeah. After they, fifteen months, yeah, they gave that him his walking papers. Totally outrageous, but I thought so too when I, when I was reading it. I, I thought this was. Um... Uh, I mean, it was just incredible, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I grew up with GE my whole life, you know, I think that that's something. Yeah, we all did. Yeah, we all did. You know, I mean, I think, and, and that's changing now, you know, there's some interesting things that ripple through the power division and the utility side of the business uh, that for good reason uh, don't appear here, but it was something that if you read like old trade publications, everybody's worried about the fact that they're not getting the cream of the crop engineers in the same way that they used to. And this problem begins in the fifties and like, so long lead time on that. And you can still see the op-eds in like electrical world in the eighties being like, they're all going mm. to Silicon Valley. And you mention it. And I think that this is really important. The cutting edge appliances that start to change everyday life start coming out of Silicon Valley and are no longer coming out of GE. 
And that feels like a real changing of the guard too. Um, I think, especially for people, my generation or younger, it's hard to appreciate the way in which these conglomerates repatterned American life uh, with their output, their consumer output, the way right. consumer think, culture was made. People, you know, GE was a technological leader in the same yeah. way we may think of today, you know, whatever, Google or Microsoft or Oracle or Apple or whatever, Tesla, whatever, being a, a technological leader. Mm -hmm. GE was all of that and more. I mean, you know, the creation of electricity, you know, yeah. X-ray machines, the jet engine, you know, perfecting jet engines. Still, they make the best jet engines in the yeah, world. Yeah, they were there at the dawn of the atomic age. You know, like they were, they were doing all of it. Um, all of it. Yeah. So to wrap up, this was fantastic, by the way. I really appreciate you coming on. I've been spoiling to talk about this book since I finished it because my wife can only hear so much uh, <laughs> about General yeah, my Electric. My wife feels the same way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know that uh, you've got some other stuff going on, I think. So I wanted to give you a chance to tell our audience uh, where they can find uh, your work as it comes out. Um, obviously, guys, buy the book. It's in the, it's in the show notes. Go buy it. Uh, but yeah. Well, I mean, I've again, I had a pretty interesting career first as a, as a journalist, then as a banker. Now going back to writing books and being a journalist, I was a special correspondent at Vanity Fair for 13 years, uh, wrote stories, profiles of all sorts of Hollywood business, you name it, people. Um, I've written seven books, uh, everything from uh book about Lazard where I worked uh Bear Stearns the collapse of Bear Stearns gold history of Goldman Sachs to the Duke lacrosse scandal to uh a book called four friends about four of my friends from high school and what happened to them in their lives the GE book um and I started uh one of the founding partners of something called puck which is a new digital, uh, news uh, commentary and analysis uh, site, um, an organization. You know, we've got, you know, uh, 10 or so writers. We've got uh, venture capital backing. Uh, I think it's having big and great impact. And I write for, you know, all sorts of publications from the FT to the New York Times to Town and Country. You know, I have a cover story coming out, um, Town and Country, on Brian Cox, the uh, actor who's the lead in Succession, which is beginning its fourth season uh, next month. So, you know, I have a website, williamcohan.com, where you can find all of my books and many of the articles I've written over the last, uh, you know, 19 years. Fantastic. Well, everybody, all of that stuff, again, will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Everybody else, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.